text this morning is from Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. I want to read the first 10 verses of Galatians as we see how Paul introduces this letter to several churches. These, this letter is written to the churches, plural, of Galatia. These were churches that he and Barnabas, not uh, too long before he writes this letter, had actually planted when they were sent out from the church at Antioch to carry the gospel to the Gentile world. Well, they did that by going into the region of Galatia. And so you can read in Acts chapter 13 and 14 the names of different cities where Paul and Barnabas went to preach. And churches were planted in those cities where people were converted. And now Paul is writing a letter back to all of those churches. So this, this letter was intended to be read in the hearing of all of the members of all of those churches as it made its way back to that region. Our text is going to be verses 6 through 10, but so we might gain something of the context as Paul opens this letter, I want to direct our attention to verse 1, and we'll begin reading there. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Are my tries trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In the first four verses of this letter, the Apostle Paul introduces the themes that he intends to expound in the rest of the letter. You see him specifically referring to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so in this letter, he is going to underscore his apostolic authority as one who was appointed to his office, not by people, not himself, but by Christ Jesus the Lord. More importantly then, he speaks about the gospel in verses 3 through 5 and, and our need to contend for the gospel as he will do and give an example of doing in the rest of this letter. As I mentioned, I want us to focus this morning on verses 6 through 10 to see how crucial it is to get the gospel right. This is something we cannot afford to take for granted. We can't afford to think, oh, yes, we know the gospel, and we believe the gospel, and we've heard the gospel, we preach the gospel, therefore we can just kind of keep it in the background. But rather, as followers of Jesus who take his word seriously, we must recognize what the apostles sets before these churches and apply it to ourselves and heed the call to always be diligent to get the gospel right. We see Paul making this point repeatedly in this letter. 
In this letter, he minces no words. In the verses we're going to look at, we'll see him speaking very pointedly. In fact, we get a hint of agitation that the Apostle Paul has as he makes this point to the churches of Galatia. We can see something of his agitation in what he doesn't say. I mean, look at the end of verse 5. Do you see that? He says, of God, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now look at the beginning of verse 6. And what do you see between verses 5 and 6? Nothing, right? Well, that's unusual for Paul's letters. For example, if you were to look at Ephesians 1, you'll see, as he commonly does when he sends a letter to churches that he's been to before, he extends wonderful expressions of thanksgiving to God for them, as he does in Ephesians 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Or Philippians 1, after he introduces the recipients of the letter and himself as the writer, he says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Or Colossians 1, Verse 3, we always thank God the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Or 1 Thessalonians 1, we give thanks to God always for you. And you can just go on and on and on. 2 Thessalonians, the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul expresses uh, warm greetings to the recipients of the letters that he writes. With the exception of the letter to the churches of Galatia. When he takes up his pen to write this letter, He's so agitated at the seriousness of the situation that he's going to confront, agitated by the danger that these new churches are facing, that he says nothing about being thankful for them or praying for them. Now, we can't conclude that Paul was not thankful for them and Paul did not pray for them, but what we can conclude is that Paul deemed it far more important to get right to the subject matter at hand than it was to express any thanksgiving or promises of prayer. And so he launches into the burden of the message of this book in verse 6. And here's the situation that has provoked the letter. False teachers have come into these new churches that Paul and Barnabas planted, and they have begun to take the message of Paul and distort it. They didn't reject it outright and say, well, Paul's just crazy but rather they began to shade certain areas of his message. They would say, yes, it's, it's, of course it's true, salvation is found only in Christ. And yes, we must believe in Christ, no doubt about that. But you must also keep the Jewish ceremonies. If you're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ, and you're going to really be right with God through him, then you must trust him, you must follow him and be circumcised. In other words, you must incorporate Jewishness into your relationship with God as you follow Christ. Well, Paul had come and taught these Galatians that the only way to get right with God is by renouncing your sin and trusting the Lord Jesus alone. Paul was adamant, as we will see in this letter, if you read through it, many of you have just read through it, that it is Christ plus nothing on which we stand in order for God to accept us. And now these so-called teachers who later came to be known as Judaizers have crept into these congregations that are dear to Paul because he 
planted them. He preached the gospel and he saw people come to Christ through that and organize them into churches. Now these false teachers have come in and said, well, Christ is important, but you need something else. They were convincing many of the members of these Galatian churches that they had to revert to a form of Jewishness, keeping certain customs if they were truly going to be right with God. When Paul learned about what was going on, he was alarmed. I think it's safe to say that he was more than alarmed. I think we can say Paul was angry. Righteously angry, but angry. He uses some of the strongest language that we find from him anywhere in this little letter. I'm not going to read it to you, but just go read Galatians 5.12, and you'll see how serious Paul is about these false teachers being dealt with. His language is earthy. He writes with a passion. He uses sarcasm and ridicule and threats, and he even uses words of condemnation, as we will hear looking again at our text. Why does Paul write this way? Why does he use such strong language in verses 6 through 10? Because Paul knows that getting the gospel right is crucial. It is a matter of spiritual life and death. You can be off on some things that the Bible teaches, and it'll hinder you, but it won't keep you from being right with God. But if you are off on the gospel, if you misread, misunderstand, misapply, what God has revealed about how sinners can be made right with our Creator through faith in Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter what else you're right about. You miss this and you miss God. You pervert this and you are blocking up the only way of salvation that is available for creatures to be put in a right relationship with our Creator. Getting the gospel right is a matter of spiritual life and death. In June of 2002, there was a nurse by the name of Richard Allen Williams who was arrested outside St. Louis, Missouri. He later came to be known as the angel of death because he was arrested with charges of administering a muscle relaxant in doses that led to the death of more than 40 people. And he had done this for over a 10-year period, they suspected, as they had sought to document it. And people began to notice, and investigation finally led to his arrest. I wonder what you would have done if you had been working with Nurse Williams. Would you have reported him? Would you have tried to stop him? Would you just look the other way and say, you know what? He's got his patience, I have mine. He's got his job, I got my job. And just try to assume that you don't know enough to investigate and just let it go. Well, I want to believe that most of us in this room would not have been able to just let something like that go once we saw it. I want to believe that our consciences would have been so stirred up that we would speak out because we know that if that is allowed to go on, more people are going to die. 
Well, that's precisely how the Apostle Paul felt whenever he takes up his letter to address these churches in Galatia. There are false teachers among them, and if those false teachers are allowed to carry on without refutation, if they are not exposed, if they're not expelled, then it's going to affect people, not physically so much, but in a far worse way, eternally. It's going to result in people who will miss God, and people, many of whom might think they're right with God and live religious lives only to discover at the end that they are numbered among the ones that the Lord Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, but Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. And Paul is too devoted to Christ and his honor. He's too devoted to the people that he knows and loves. He's too devoted to the message of salvation to simply sit by and do nothing. So he writes this letter to sound an alarm. There are three things I want to point out from the text in verses 6 through 10 that show us how Paul does this. And the first is found in verse 6 and to the first part of verse 7, that renouncing the true gospel is astonishing. I mean, it's shocking to him. He uses that word, astonished. It means to be amazed astounded, to, to almost be beyond belief. He's shocked that it would happen at all. Why in the world would you give up that which gives you life for something that you think is better? He's also astonished that it has happened so quickly. You see that? It hadn't been that long since Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to these churches in Galatia, established those churches. Maybe a year, year and a half, two years, but it wasn't long. And so having just been with them, having seen the gospel work, the power of God transform lives, Paul now writes back to them and says, how can you do this at all? How can you do this so quickly? The message that they'd preached to the Galatians had been simple and clear. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It's a message that says that you are sinful before God because you have fallen away from Him and that we're all in that condition and that the only way to be made right with God, to get back into a uh, fellowship with God, is on the basis of righteousness. Righteousness that is untainted. Righteousness that is thorough and complete and perfect righteousness that you and I don't have and we can't produce. But it's the righteousness that Jesus Christ did come and produce. He earned by his life as a real man in this world by keeping God's commandments, never once stumbling, never doing a wrong thing, never leaving a right thing undone, never saying a sinful word, never harboring a sinful thought. Fulfilling righteousness so that what God requires of you and me will be completed and satisfied in Him. And then having lived that righteous life, He voluntarily stepped into the role of the sin-bearing Savior and took upon Himself the wrath of God against sin, though He, he never sinned wasn't his own sin. He had no sin. And yet, he stepped into the place of sinners. And he faced the wrath of God against sin. 
And, and that's what the cross is all about. That's what's going on in the death of Jesus Christ. It is the Son of God who became flesh, having taken the place of human beings, submitted himself before God in order to pay the penalty of our sin. He did that so that we who are without the righteousness that God requires and we who, if called upon to pay for our own sin, will have to spend an eternity in hell doing so, might be forgiven of our sins, <laughs> might have our sins separated from us, might have the penalty of our sins fully satisfied, fully paid, so that as we turn from sin, renounce it, we confess it, we don't play around with it, and we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we can know that in Him, God receives us as righteous for Christ's sake. In Him, He receives us as having fully satisfied the demands of His law against sinners because Christ paid for our sin. Well, that's the message that Paul had preached. We see this as you read through Acts 13 and 14 because we have little summary statements and sometimes parts of actual sermons that the apostle preached. For example, in Acts chapter 13, in verses 38 and 39, when he is in the town of Antioch of Pisidia, one of the Galatian cities, this is what is recorded that he said, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man Jesus has preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You want to be justified in God's courtroom? Only one way, through the man Christ Jesus. You must turn from your sin, you must trust him, and as you renounce your sin and you offer up your life to him in simple faith, God justifies you. God forgives you for Christ's sake. Despite such clear teaching and the fact that it had not even been that long ago when Paul himself taught it, the Galatians are now turning away from that message to a different message. And in Paul's mind, this is shocking. It means deserting the true God. He says, you've done this so quickly. Deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Deserting the one who sent Christ, revealed Christ to you, called you in Christ. You're deserting God. The gospel comes from God. Six times the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is recorded as describing the gospel as the gospel of God. For example, in 2 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, he said, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to set you free of charge? Believing this gospel is the only way to be made right with God. I know there are people today who think, well, you know, there are different paths that you can get to God and, and that God will accept you if you just stay on one of those different paths. But the scripture is very clear that's simply not true. Paul was very clear. So that any deviation from this one message of salvation would result in forsaking the gospel of God. Forsaking the God who calls us to be right with him through this gospel message. This is what Jesus means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Paul believed that. He understood that. 
He'd been taught that, and he himself taught that to others. And now there's a danger of the people in Galatia whom he taught that, who believed in and staked their lives on it, made right with God because of it, are going to be moved off of that message. And that's why he writes. You cannot be right with God apart from this gospel. You cannot be forgiven of sins apart from this way of salvation. While I could say this about other dimensions of the gospel, there are two components of it that are absolutely essential to the point that if you distort them in any degree, you've perverted the whole message of the gospel itself. And that's the content of the gospel and the way that that content becomes powerful in your own life. The content of the gospel is that it's only through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that anybody can be accepted by God. There is no other way. There's nothing else necessary. It is Christ, Christ alone. The way to benefit from his life and death and resurrection is by turning from sin and trusting him. It is through faith alone. Not faith plus your good works, not faith plus your good intentions, not faith plus your church membership or your religious activities, but it is simple faith. It's bowing to him. It's entrusting yourself to him. It is only when you have the content of the gospel right and you receive that content in the simplicity of faith that you will be made right with God. And every time the gospel is explained and taught and proclaimed to you as it is right now, it's God calling you. God calling you. Paul saw that happen in the cities of Galatia. Now he reminds them that they're turning away from the God who called them through this gospel. And so you may be here this morning and, and perhaps you've heard the gospel maybe all your life, maybe multiple times, but you, you've never seriously taken into account your relationship to this gospel and relationship to God through this gospel. Well, friend, I'm delighted you're here. I'm delighted you found this church and hope you'll continue to come to this church. But this church wants you to know that your only hope in this world and the world to come is to be made right with God by believing this gospel. You, you need to trust Christ. And he's a great savior. He's willing to save you. That's why he came. And if you'll turn from your sin and entrust yourself to Jesus, he will accept you. And if you want to know more about that, you can talk to any of the members, the elders of this church, and they'll be glad to explain that to you further. But please, don't leave today without that sense that God brought you here to call you. And he is calling you through the ministry of this word that's being explained to you. And his call is turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ to be saved. And that's the prayer and the hope of this congregation for all who would come and gather in a meeting like this for worship. Those who are Christians, brothers and sisters, we should remember that the reason we're Christians is because God called us. It's not that we're so smart, not that we woke up one day and said, you know what I think I'm going to do today? I think today I'm just going to become a Christian. You know, it was God's work from beginning to end. And God worked through this message. God taught us the gospel. God 
brought people into our lives, put us in circumstances where this gospel came to bear upon our thinking, and we couldn't escape its truthfulness or its power. We saw ourselves as sinners, we saw ourselves as hopeless, and we saw that Jesus Christ is the only Savior this world has. And by His grace, God opened our eyes and enabled us to trust Christ. He called us, and He called us by this gospel of grace. It's astonishing, then, that anyone would want to turn away from this gospel. Paul makes that point, and he goes on to say, turning away from the gospel is astonishing because it means settling for a destructive substitute. You see that? In verse 6, they turn from the true gospel to a different gospel, a different way of trying to relate to God. As the Judaizers came in and taught that it's Christ plus Old Testament ceremonies. Christ plus doing these things. It is faith in Christ plus works. There are a number of ways that we can mix up the faith that God requires us to have in Christ with our own efforts, with our own works. We can do this by trying to be good enough for God to accept us and thinking, if I just try harder, if I just try harder, if I just do a little bit better, then I can allow myself to believe that God really does love me. God doesn't love you because of your efforts. God loves you because of his son. And you need to get off of the ground of thinking, if you only do a little better, then you can somehow provoke God's love for you. We can do this by trying to be religious or religious enough. And just thinking, if I just read my Bible more, if I just sing more, if I just go and gather and worship more, then surely you know, that, that will allow me to identify with these people as Christians and I can begin to hope that God will accept me. You can do this by trying to know more. Say, so I'm going to really read theology and I'm going to come, become more and more schooled in the deep things of God. And so you, you try to stretch your understanding, which is not bad. But you do so with that sense of, if I only know this, if I only learn this, then, then I can be counted as a Christian. Well, anything like that that we do puts the basis of our hope to be something other than Christ and Christ alone. It's a different way of relating to Christ. And so it sets us up to believe in the language of the Apostle Paul, another gospel, another gospel. But do you see what he says in verse 7? It really isn't another gospel. Not that there is another one. Gospel means good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's what he's done. It's who he is. It's what he's done. And it's why that matters. And in that sense, there is that only one true gospel that saves. It's there only, there only is one message of salvation. One message that will make a sinner right with God through Jesus Christ. What the Galatians are turning to that Paul is so alarmed about is another message. Just a slight deviation at points, but it constitutes a different way of thinking, a different teaching. And he calls it another gospel, and he quickly says it's not really a gospel. There's no good news in that. Because if you believe that, it will take you away from God. It will not take you to God. We must be very clear that the only hope this world has is the message of Jesus Christ. 
It is what he has accomplished for sinners. It's what God sent him into the world to do. And he alone, by his life and death and resurrection, has provided the way for people to become right with their creator. Church, this is the message we have. This is what God has commissioned us to proclaim. We are stewards of this message. Educational institutions can teach all kinds of wonderful things. Governmental institutions can do things that can benefit the people that are under their governmental authority. But it is to the church of Jesus Christ that God has given the one message that saves sinners. And we're stewards of it. We're responsible to keep it, to defend it, to grow in it, to proclaim it. Paul believes this he teaches this and so he's astonished he's astonished that they would so quickly depart from it do not let anyone move you off of the simplicity of this one way of salvation in jesus christ become fixated on the gospel Become so clear in your thinking that you will not be easy prey for anybody who comes along and says, you know, what you believe is okay, but have you ever considered this too, that you really need something beyond trusting Jesus? You need Jesus plus all of these other things? If we do that, then we set ourselves up to be moved away from the one path of salvation. It helps us to remember that there's nothing we can ever do in and of ourselves that will ever be good enough for God. If we just remember that, it would save us perhaps a lot of energy and misthinking and stop us from going very far down wrong roads if we just will recall, I can never do anything in myself that is good enough for God. Isaiah says this, you take all of your righteous actions and you put them in a bag and hold them up before God, and God's eyes are like filthy rags. In and of yourself, the things that you do outside of Jesus Christ, no matter how philanthropic you are, how loving you are, how kind you are, how generous you are, how self-sacrificial you are, all of your righteous acts apart from Christ are like dirty diapers in the sight of God. The prophet Jeremiah illustrates the insanity of trying to make yourself right with God while rejecting the way of salvation that God's provided freely in Jesus Christ. He does this in a very graphic way in Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen to what the Lord says in Jeremiah 2 verse 9. He says to his people, Therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges for pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this. Be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. And here it is. For my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Two, They've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Isn't that an incredible picture? He says, here, people to whom I've revealed my covenant, the people to whom I've sent prophets, the people to whom I've taught the way of salvation. 
And they're just like folks out in the middle of a desert, dying of thirst, dying of thirst, needing water. And so they grab their shovels and they start digging in the sand and they think, we're going to dig, we're going to dig until we get water that will refresh us. All the while behind them is this artesian well of fresh living water that's bubbling up. And they refuse to turn around and go drink, thinking, no, if we just dig a little harder, we just dig a little longer, if we do it a little different way, then we will finally find satisfaction. Then we will finally get what our souls long for. And God says, be astonished at this sight. I wonder if there's some of you here this morning, and this would be an accurate picture of you. You know you need your sins forgiven. You know you need God's favor. You know that you need to be made right with God, and and yet you just somehow feel like it, it just can't be that simple to trust Jesus Christ alone. And so you think, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to sign up for more classes. I'm going to read my Bible longer. And you keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going, and God is saying to you, throw away your shovels. Turn around and come and drink from Jesus Christ. Trust the Lord Jesus. Believe him. Never think for a moment that he will not accept you. He came into this world to save sinners. And you and I are sinners. And Christ is glorified when we renounce our sin and trust him. Turning from the true gospel is astonishing, Paul says. But secondly, distorting the true gospel is damnable. Damnable. Intentionally teaching against salvation by grace through faith is a perversion of God's message of grace. Now, Paul doesn't define the gospel in the verses that I read. But he does define it in various ways throughout the rest of this letter. For example, if you just look at the second chapter, in verses 15 and 16, he writes this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And so he's saying, look, I I have the benefits of being a Jew. And yet, as Jews, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because works of the law, no one will be justified. You see just Paul making the point again and again and again and again. It's not works, not keeping law, it's by faith. It's Christ, it's trusting Christ. Or look at the third chapter. In verse 11, he says, now it is evident that no one's justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I mean, it, this is the gospel. This is, he's explaining the cross He's explaining the curse that Jesus absorbed in himself from the law that says the soul that sins must surely die. And so when Jesus steps in the place of human souls, he dies. He experiences death. He experiences God's damnation against sin in himself on the cross. 
Paul's concerned because anything that adds to or subtracts from this gospel of grace distorts it. It distorts the revealed message from God, and this is serious business. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Consider this language. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Distorting the gospel deserves damnation no matter who is guilty of it. It doesn't matter how fine, how good, how great the preacher is, how respected he is, If he distorts the gospel message, he deserves to be condemned to hell. This is not a personal issue with Paul. He's not upset because the Galatians are listening to somebody other than him. He's upset because the people they're listening to are distorting the gospel of grace. So he says, if we come in and preach a different gospel, Paul says, if I come in, or any of the other apostles come in and preach a different gospel, then let us be condemned to hell. That's what the word means. It's anathema. It's anathema. And then he says, if even an angel from heaven should do that. Can you imagine that? I've tried to imagine. What might it be like if an angel showed up in one of our worship gatherings? You know what happens most often, what's often associated with angels in the Bible? When angels show up, people fall down. I mean, we, we think of them as these nice little cherubs and we put them on necklaces and, you know, on the pale pins and all. Nothing like a biblical angel. They were fierce beings. I mean, what would happen if Michael suddenly appeared and said to you, what you've been hearing for the last several minutes is wrong? I know you've believed that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus plus nothing, but you really do have to do these three other things. And I have come from heaven to declare it to you. That'd be pretty impressive. What would you do? You see the point Paul's making? Even if an angelic being were to come and stand before you and to deviate from this one gospel message that has been proclaimed to you, you must be prepared to say, Michael, anathema. Angelic being, we renounce you. This is a serious matter to Paul, and he is placing an incredible responsibility upon the congregations there in Galatia and upon this congregation and congregations like this one throughout the world, if anyone does it, regardless of credentials or gifts. False teachers, no matter who they are, no matter how credentialed they might be, are worthy of damnation, accursed, anathema, delivered over to destruction by God, eternally damned to hell. And they're to be so regarded by Christians Receiving a perverted gospel is similarly blameworthy. You can't escape the logic of the Apostle Paul here. If it is blameworthy to come and distort the gospel, it is also blameworthy to receive 
a distorted gospel. That's the point of the whole letter. If the false teachers are worthy of damnation because of what they teach, then those who accept what they teach cannot be blameless. This is what John says in 2 John verses 10 and 11 when he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your houses nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. No wonder Jesus said in Mark 4, Take heed, be careful with what you hear. Be careful with what you hear. Brothers and sisters, you know what that means for us? We need to be very careful who we listen to. You need to be very careful what teachers you open up your mind to. Who you listen to in your podcasts. Who you listen to on the radio. The books that you read. Be very careful. Praise God for elders. And run those things by your elders if you have any question whatsoever. Because you might think it's innocent, and though they disagree with us on some things, you know, they're okay on these things. Make sure that those disagreements are only secondary or tertiary matters, and that there's no disagreement on the gospel of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. Because if they deviate from that, then Paul says they're worthy of being rejected. You know, we should be very slow to charge anyone with preaching a different gospel. Love hopes all things. But when we reach that conclusion, when we come to see that, yes, indeed, this is a distortion of the gospel of Jesus, then our responsibility in relation to that person is very plain. We're not to receive his teaching, nor are we to acknowledge him as a faithful teacher, nor listen to his instructions any further. Verses 8 and 9 include some of the strongest language that Paul uses anywhere in his writings or preaching. And yet Paul says it twice. He wants to underscore his point. He sees what is at stake, and he wants to make sure that we see what he sees. The message of the gospel is not something that you can take and twist and distort to fit any teaching, any situation, any church circumstance. But rather, it has been once for all revealed. It is to be received it is to be believed, and it is to be defended. You know, we should be willing to accommodate as far as we can the weaknesses and ignorances that we find in our fellow Christian brothers and sisters, uh, remembering that we ourselves have weaknesses and ignorance as well. We have blind spots, but we cannot, we must not give one inch of the gospel message by sal that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We can't back up one inch from this. And anybody who teaches contrary to this simple way of salvation in Christ, Paul says, is worthy of damnation. Now, if this sounds strange to you or harsh to you, I would encourage you to spend more time thinking about it. Because as the gospel grips you, and you become more and more aware of all that God has saved you from, and you let your mind go where Paul tells us that we should from time to time, remembering what we once were and what we now are and how God has dealt with us, not according to our sins, but He's dealt with us according to Christ. The power, the beauty, the glory of that message should grip us 
and grip us in such a way that we will not sit idly by when we hear it being distorted. Brothers and sisters, there's something in this passage that's so obvious that it's easy to miss. This text is incredibly important to us as we think about our lives together in a church. Isn't it interesting to whom the Apostle Paul addresses this letter? It's to the churches. It's not to the elders. It's not to the deacons. Certainly they were included. But it's to the members. It's to the members. Praise God that he has ordered the church to be led by godly qualified men who will rule as elders. But do not think that because God has given this church godly elders who take their job seriously, that you therefore are free to not have to think about the gospel or care about the gospel enough to be able to discern when it's being distorted. No, Paul says that all of us must own the responsibility that even if an apostle shows up, even if Gabriel comes from heaven and preaches to us a different gospel, that we will own the burden of responsibility to say, no, we reject it. Anathema. That's a heavy responsibility. It's something that if you've not thought about before, I would admonish you to begin to think about your duty before God to protect the gospel, to preserve the gospel, to, to be defenders of the gospel. The Apostle Paul sees this as a responsibility not just for church leaders, but for all the members of the churches. Well, he tells us here that renouncing the true gospel is astonishing. Perverting the true gospel is damnable. And then in verse, nine, or verse 10, he goes on to say, serving the true gospel means seeking God's pleasure alone. <laughs> I, love, I love this. You can just hear the sarcasm oozing from Paul. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? A gospel server cannot be a man pleaser. False teachers were evidently teaching, saying that Paul was just going with the wind. Well, the reason Paul's not teaching circumcision is because he doesn't want to upset the Gentiles. He knows he'll get in trouble with them, and Paul's just trying to be peaceful with them and not incur wrath from them. Paul responds to this accusation by calling attention to his pronounced judgment in verses 8 and 9. Am I now? You just heard what I said. Anybody preaches a different gospel than what I preach to you, let him be accursed. Does that sound like somebody seeking the approval of man? The people that have accused me of just trying to play to the crowds, does that, does that sound like what I'm doing? Is this consistent with what the accusations are? A man pleaser wouldn't write that way. It's better to offend people than God. We must remember this, believe this, and live this way. Because there are subtle pressures always at work trying to get us to compromise what God has revealed in order to keep from offending people. That doesn't mean that you go around angling for a fight. I'm not suggesting that. But it does mean that we be so clear about this gospel message that we will not tolerate its distortion. We won't just countenance anybody who says, oh yeah, I believe mostly what you do about Jesus, but some of these things are different. I like what the Scottish theologian John Brown said about this. He said, there are truths which ought to be told and which cannot be told without displeasing some men. But then they cannot be concealed without displeasing 
Christ. Brothers and sisters, mark it down. Man-pleasing and Christ-pleasing are mutually exclusive. We've got to determine that we're going to live for the honor and the glory and the praise of our Master. Jesus said nobody can serve two masters. And it's true. So which master are we going to serve? Whose pleasure are we going to seek? Whose approval do we look for? Back in 1992, Dr. Gordon Christensen noticed what he thought were some abnormalities about patients dying on Nurse Williams' shifts. And so he began to note them. He began to document them. He began to do research and discovered that a patient under this nurse had a likelihood of dying that was more than 10 times that of other patients in the VA hospital. And so when he gathered enough evidence, got the data together, he presented it to the hospital authorities and made charges against Mr. Williams. Nobody believed Dr. Christensen. They, they thought he had some kind of personal vendetta against this nurse. In fact, the hospital administrators tried to have him arrested. They ruined his career. He kept pressing his case until finally, 10 years later, Nurse Williams, the angel of death, was finally arrested. Why didn't he quit? At the first pushback, why didn't he just say, well, you know, I tried. Because he saw what was at stake. He recognized that if this continues on, more patients will die unnecessarily. And as one who had sworn the Hippocratic Oath, he determined that he couldn't do nothing. And he pressed his case at great cost. That's the way Paul felt when he wrote this letter to the Galatians. A false gospel will destroy people spiritually. It will keep people from believing the true gospel and being saved by the grace of God in that gospel. Paul was too committed to the glory of God, had too great a love for people to remain silent, so he spoke. He had to warn. Brothers and sisters, the problems that afflicted the churches of Galatia are still with us today. And not so much in our context that people are coming and saying, hey, you need to start teaching and practicing circumcision again but rather in the sense that there's this gospel plus. Yes, it's good to have Jesus. Yes, it's right to have faith, but you, you need that plus these other things. And if you don't have these other things, then you've never really had the gospel. And we must be so clear on the message of the gospel that we will not let fine-sounding teachers knock us off of it and whenever they persist in trying to convince us that the gospel is something other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing, that we're prepared to say anathema. We'll not listen to you. We'll not sit back and pretend that we are believing the same message. We must get the gospel right. We must preach it in all of its glorious simplicity and set it before people and call upon men and women and children, anyone, to turn from sin and believe this gospel and be saved. It and it alone is the power of God to accomplish this, just that. Jesus Christ came into the world, 
lived the life of righteousness God requires of us, died a bloody death on the cross that we should die because of our own sins, was raised from the dead, has ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now. One day we'll return. And he has done that so that anyone and everyone who trusts in him might be saved. So believe the gospel. Be saved. Protect this gospel. Don't let it be distorted. Don't be knocked off of it. Grow in your understanding of, your appreciation of, your love with, your, your delight in this gospel so that whenever it begins to be distorted, no matter who it is that would do so, you're prepared to stand with Paul and say, no, anathema. We're not giving up the one way of salvation that God's given us in His Son. Let's pray together. Our Father... We thank you that you have not left us in our sin, but you have come to us and revealed Christ in us through this glorious gospel. I thank you for this church and for the commitment to the gospel that is here. Oh God, drive them deeper in that commitment. Give them greater clarity. Give them greater joy in it. Help them to, to declare it with great confidence knowing that it's still the power of God to save all who believe. And I pray for the ones here today that, that have never believed the gospel. They know it, they could recite the facts of it, but they've never turned from their sin and humbled themselves before Jesus and called Him Lord. Would you not today grant saving faith? Would you not today call and speak with a voice that raises the dead so that men and women and children who walked through the doors today, strangers to you, might leave? being reconciled to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for loving us enough to tell us, to tell us the truth. Seal to our hearts all the things that are true that we've considered this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen.